new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram, and uh, on today's podcast, we have with us our special guest, Darwin Dave, to do this interview with me. Darwin, how are you today? I'm great, Sean. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, we don't, unfortunately, have our good buddy, Dr. Joshua Black, but hey, you know what? If there's anybody who's going to fill in in his shoes, I think it's you, Darwin. You're the man. Uh, those are some pretty big shoes. Uh, don't don't put me on a pedestal. <laughs> All right. Um, and on today's podcast, we have with us Baron Stefan. So he is a longtime student on the spiritual path of Siddha Yoga, a big band crooner and a widower. He has been a big wave surfer and a 1980s Italian pop singer and an award winning elementary school teacher. Stefan has now fully transitioned from the elementary school classroom to his company, the Yoga of Mindset, where he teaches children and adults how to use their thoughts so they're not used by them. Baron recently published the book, The Final Gift of the Beloved, Her Disappearance, 13 Days. And you can find more about Baron on his website, which is baronstefan.com, and we'll post a link to that in our show notes. Baron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Glad to join you both. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And again, um, could you just tell everybody where you're calling us from? <laughs> I'm calling you from the island of Oahu. Yes, yeah, so we got to make everyone jealous, including myself. And me too. Yeah, and uh, how's the weather there? <laughs> Obviously, you get that question a lot, probably. Yeah, I do. It's um, This morning, it's a little bit muggy, and it's sun and clouds at the same time, and then the trade winds are blowing through, so... It should clear up a little later. Oh, man. That's going to be my motivation during this podcast. I'm just going to imagine that scene as we're speaking, and hopefully I can actually mm. feel like I'm there. You know, just reading through your bio, very interesting life you've led so far, and almost mm. like, you know, multiple lives in, in a lot of ways. Do you feel like that sometimes? Oh, my God. You, you hit the nail on the head. Even if we were just to talk about my bio regularly, it would seem that way. But you hit on one of the themes of the book, too, which is remarkable. So, yeah, multiple lives for sure. I think we all do. I feel like that as well. I haven't uh, hit a third yet. Well, hopefully I haven't hit a third of my life. <laughs> I've been more than that. But, yeah, I felt like that at times in my life. And Darwin, I know you've had an eclectic like so far. Have you felt like that? Yeah, well, and that was I know why. I've gotten involved in so many different things. Uh, a lot of times it's to escape from other realities of my life. So one of the things I wanted to ask Baron almost right up front is why or what was the motivation of doing everything? I mean, surfing, big band, teaching. It seems like you've done everything except for climb Mount Everest, uh, unless you left that out of your bio. So, I mean, is there a reason why you've just stayed so busy and, and in so many different things? You know, what's come clear is that we, we all follow our interests, and I have followed my interests from day one. So, you know, as a young boy, I was really interested in sports and surfing and all that. And growing up in Santa Monica Canyon, that was all available to me. I also grew up in a house where there was music all the time. My mom was an opera singer and my godfather was Baron Hilton. So we had these famous people in my house singing and doing music. And I thought, I thought everybody in Santa Monica Canyon had that going on every night. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. It, you know, you, you grew up in a home where something was normal and then you kind of get out of that and then you realize, oh, wait a minute, not everybody's got these uh, interesting talents. So what made you want to pursue a career in music? That's a great question. I, I grew up with music in the house. So my mom was not only an opera singer, but she was also um, signed to MGM when she married my dad. 
She taught voice and diction. Both my sisters ended up teaching voice and diction. Um, so I grew up in a very musical household. And so when I ended up moving to Italy, <laughs> strangely enough, when I was uh, 20, and got into music there by chance. So it was, it's just, I just end up feeling like things are meant to happen and really our interests pull us towards them. And music was one of those things. And when you talk about going to Italy, what was that experience like? Was that the first time you'd kind of left the house and been away from your family? In a sense, yeah, Italy was also a really big break as well because I went there when I was 20 to visit a friend and I was supposed to go for three weeks and ended up staying for like a year. The interesting thing about that was that it was a real break with my mother and my family. So it was it was looked on as a taboo thing. You, you should not not come back, Baron. <laughs> so it was that kind of break from the mother and from the family. And it was into the arms of music. And I met an Italian band there that was looking for an American or English singer. And, and that took my life for about the next five, ten years. Now, did you go with the express written consent? to play music or what was the initial trip to Italy for? Yeah, I was supposed to be visiting a friend who was uh, at that time a, a Mexican um, singer and actor who was famous. And he was, he just invited me to come and, and see Italy while he was recording an album in a studio in Bologna. And so while I was in Bologna, I was, you know, going to his studio sessions and then we'd go out in the afternoon at night. And I don't know if you've ever had close friends with Italians, but they are, it was just a revelation. To be with them was my first kind of understanding of, oh, so guys can be together in a totally different way. It was just a revelation of fun and playfulness. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I have had that experience of a couple of Italian friends, and you're absolutely right. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> love to eat, love to uh, hang out. <laughs> You know, and yeah, you know what? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry, Sean, to interrupt. Just like the, I remember the first revelation was like we went out to a club and had a great time and ended up going out and, and back to a friend's house at 6 a.m. and all like cooking together. But what I noticed was once they, you know, there were some girls that were with us, they didn't split off kind of like I had come to know Americans to do. We all stayed together and it was this communal aspect of everything that I just fell in love with. Yeah, that's very interesting you say that. And I think, and, and you could actually spread that to more of even the European style of kind of going out and hanging out. And even to a larger extent of just the pace of lifestyle in Europe compared to even the Western lifestyle. Like, like I feel like they make more time for just, you know, tea or, or just having a little chat with a friend. Those things aren't as rushed, I think. Uh, I think here we run on a uh, pretty tight schedule for the most part. Got to make it to this appointment and got to go home and do this. And then we don't really mm -hmm. have that moment to kind of, um, hey, just socialize in, in that uh, with your fellow man, kind of like that. Yeah, I think the, that dovetails with my other huge insight there, which was I could, when I started to learn Italian, I couldn't figure out how they got from thought A to thought B. It's like they went through a thought A, Z, T, B. Like the way they thought was so different from American thinking that that was a revelation too was, oh, it's almost like a whole different being. And it was such an opening, a heart opening too. Wow, that's so interesting. I know you got into Siddha Yoga and 
was that during this time of i think you you said you were in italy for five to ten years was that during this time that you got introduced to yoga or was that after this was just before city yoga um i it's actually an entire chapter in the book called shaktipat when i was 20 in santa monica canyon just a little surfer rat my mom came to me and my two sisters and my grandpa and said today i'm going to take you to meet a real holy man and just down the street for three months Baba Muktananda, uh, an Indian meditation master from the East, had come and set up this huge white tent in this parking lot right on the boardwalk there. And he was giving, you know, lessons and chanting and all that stuff. And so she took us down there. And that's how it started. I, um, I got exposed to it that way. What is it about yoga that, I guess, drew you to it initially? But what, what made you want to continue to learn about it? Mm. Yeah, what drew me to it initially was simply that, that I had the great good fortune of my mom taking me down there and and knowing, though my mom is devoutly Catholic, that this Indian man was what she would call a real holy man because she had had an experience with him in what's called a Shaktipat intensive years before in Oakland, California. So more than Catholic, my mom is just, religious is the wrong word, spiritual, I guess, is is Mm. a better word. And so what what drew me to it, I mean, imagine at the age of 20, really, that's not what I want to be doing with my time. But what was different about this was that it's a direct experience of what they say. Had it been anything else, I wouldn't have been drawn to it. But I had some powerful, unexplainable experiences right off the bat, which are chronicled in that book um, that I wrote. So it really was that, that wow, what is this stuff and how how does this stuff happen? It was completely outside the norm of daily life, but it was direct experience. Now, uh, one question to that, Baron, is now, were you raised uh, Catholic? Yes and no. So yes, I went to Catholic school from the time I was in kindergarten, Corpus Christi in the Pacific Palisades and, um, you know, had Holy Communion and all that stuff. But there was an openness in my in my house and with my mom and father to to whatever we would resonate to so though you know you would look in mom's room and you would see you a, a little altar with pictures of christ but then next to him would be padre pio which is a, another saint from right that time and so she was just open to all of this stuff so this this openness is what allowed all this to happen i think so well and the only reason i ask is because i myself were raised Roman Catholic, and the first time I stepped into a Baptist church, let's say, was total culture shock. I mean, I'm used to <laughs> walking in, mass being like 45 minutes, no later than an hour, and all of a sudden I'm in church from like nine until noon. So I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out. So I'm just trying to figure out. What, it, obviously, being exposed to it, how long did it take you from the time that you were exposed to it? To being all in in terms of the the overall experience itself and what was that like you know it was very long so um i had super powerful experience and unexplainable to me which is you know in in the book but after that you know i went through this whole thing from let's see i met baba in the canyon in 1980 so i didn't go back to city yoga for 12 or 13 years when i was there was kind of a a really powerful challenge in my life um, that drew me back to it because I needed it. And in a sense, that's what Siddha Yoga became for me was it it proved itself with the toughest of trials to always be there for me and always to provide what I needed. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. And when you were in Italy, you'd, you'd already known about this type of yoga. You'd already been introduced to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you reconnect with it in Italy? Like, was there a place where you could go to do the yoga with other people? Was it something that you kind of had to do on your own and continue? There was, but I didn't use it. So from the time I met Baba in 1980 until 1994 or 1993, kind of when my son came into existence, I did not do Siddha Yoga, but the initiation in Siddha Yoga was so powerful in 1980 that I started to have spiritual experiences. Like, so there was a moment when I walked into, so I was in the South of France for a music conference for my band. And I walked into this little English bookstore and there on the shelf was this tiny used thin blue hardbound book. And it was the poetry of Robert Browning. And in that book, I I just pulled it off and I bought it. And I read the poem called Rabbi Ben Ezra. And it is, I don't know, it's probably 25 or 30 pages long. And it is so powerful. And it, it hit that same spot that Baba had hit in 1980. And that, I think, real spirituality hits, which is just the heart that knows there's something more going on. And uh, that was my connection to it at that time, was that poem. Um, yeah, I, I still even, I memorized the last verse or the, one of the last verses from it and just, I always have it with me. It's uh, What is it? it he says, um, but I need now as then the God to mold this man. And since not even while the world was worse did I to the wheel of life with shapes and colors rife, bound dizzily, mistake my end to slake thy thirst. That's some powerful stuff. That is. That's, that's good. <laughs> Darwin, have you ever had a, a moment like that where you something changed for you? Well, yes. And I think for me, it was... Just trying to conquer my overall fear of heights, actually. But when I look back at having, well, it, it was something that a drill sergeant once said to me when I was actually trying to climb this this high obstacle. It's like a 30-foot ladder. And I'm sitting there and I'm stuck. And it's like, I don't think I can go forward. He's like, well, you got two choices. He's like, you can go up on your own or somebody's going to crawl over you. And you just simply, gravity is just going to take over and you're just going to fall. So whatever you do, you might as well just go ahead and do it to the fullest. And if you fail, you fail, but you, you got to try at least. So I've tried to sort of live my life or motto to that. Not n- Nothing as expiring as Barron's just, you know, quoted. But, um, but yeah, I, I have. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I was, as he was saying that, I was thinking, I have experienced things like that, but not quite in that form. I think we, I think there's different forms. Like, you know, you could see things, you could touch things, you could read things and they can touch you that way. I'm, I was trying to think of my life. And I know there was a moment when I went to British Columbia, Canada, and I saw the mountains. Yeah, I saw, uh, I can't even remember uh, which mountain it was, but it was uh, close to there. And it was just amazing. I'd never seen mountains like that before. I'd never been that close to mountains. And just looking at them, looking at the peaks, looking at the snow on on top of it, it kind of gave me that feeling, that that feeling of awe, and also that a little bit of an insight into like, oh, I'm I'm tiny, like this is <laughs> this thing's massive. It's in front of me, 
and it kind of has that vibe to it where like oh there's, mm-hmm. there's things bigger than me but what i liked about that quote that that you talked about robert browning it made me feel like almost giving things up to god in whatever god you believe in and asking for uh help in a way to shape the life because it's bigger than almost bigger than you outside of you what uh what was your impression of that and how and how do you apply those into your life well god what you just said is so inspiring and to me that that's the beginning of my spiritual path is when i understood what you said about the mountain like for trying for so long to figure out life, trying this and that and all these efforts. And really the the door that opened, and, and I attribute it to having met Baba in 1980, like he did, he something happened there and in this yoga. But the beginning for me, Sean, was the understanding that I, there was, that I had no idea and I would never have any idea how to, succeed and and ultimately it was it is the most like what people would normally say is the heart worst things that could happen to you that were by far the biggest openings for my life and took me in a completely different direction because i had something true to turn to like in those moments and the two of them are one i had a son out of wedlock with a woman i didn't know who didn't you know, just was never going to be a match. And that became so painful that I turned back to City Yoga. That's how I went back in 1992. And the other was just now, you know, three years ago, almost with the death of my sudden, you know, car accident on my wife's death. Like in those moments, it's, it's like that mountain. It's you realize how utterly small you are and how completely foolish it would be to continue trying to do things the same way. And in that moment, in that opening, grace comes in from someplace else. I have a question. Well, I, mm. I guess I always have questions. That's what this interview is about, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I always say that. But <laughs> I, too, have struggled at various points in my life with exactly what you're saying. But how do you get to that point? And just as a frame of reference, um, I have my own podcast called Dealing With My Grief, which centers around my father being murdered when I was 10. So I, I, I've come to, to know over these past 40 plus years that, as Sean said, you know, there are things around me that are bigger than I am. And sometimes you just got to roll with the punches and things may not always be what they seem and you don't know what you don't know. But how do you sell that point that you just said to people or to anyone who just says, okay, well, Life is just crap. Bad things keep happening to me. So I, what's the point? Yeah, my experience is you can't. It, it can't be sold at all. It, it can't even be bought, really. It is something that where you have to get to such a place. And this isn't true for everybody. There's probably a few exceptions of you have to suffer so much that you, you're just in such pain that you, you desperately turn inside and like there's this inner crying out a prayer of help me god if if you if you're anywhere if there is anything help me and in that opening something comes in but most people i don't think they can they can ever get anything like it sounds like you'd like to help them but i don't think that help is available until people get to the place of desperately wanting to be helped 
and and look for it themselves. In my experience, without that earnestness, it, it's just a waste of time. It's not possible. And by the way, I also want to just say my condolences for you, for your experience of when you attend that must have been oh. devastating. Thank you. It, it it and it was. But I guess yeah. uh, but further to my point, though, when you talk about when we've when we've talked about a belief in God, some type of spirituality, or what whatever higher power it is that you believe in. Again, I know a lot of people that sort of turn their back on them because, well, in your case, your wife died in an accident. So if there was a God or if there was this higher being, then why would he allow, he or she would allow that to happen to me? So the fact that you've experienced some strife, some type of grief in in certain people's minds sort of is directly related to the fact that, well, there can't be this higher power because my loved one or I didn't do anything to deserve whatever happened to us. Yeah, that's always the block for everyone. And it, it was it was mine, too. And, and what so I'm going to tell you guys, there's a outside of yoga, there's a wonderful book that really, really helped me. And two days after my wife died, I talked to one of the monks in City Yoga and he directed me to this book. And it's by a Dr. Michael Newton, and it's called Destiny of Souls. And in this book, so basically, he's a doctor who uh, uh, was a psychotherapist who interviewed, who hypnotized people to take them back into you know, past lives. And what he found was a way to, to get them to go so deep that he, they went down to what he calls the life in between lives. So from that perspective, we... I would just read the book because it's so clear when we have this total, it takes a totally different perspective of seeing that, oh, it's not just this one life. There's, we have all lived many lives and we came into this life to learn certain things. And I think that's, that's the biggest, that's the only way. And in the, in my book, that's, that's the point I get to in the middle of it, like on the third day of, of like, how can this not be a calamity? And what shifted for me was this understanding of, oh, we've lived many lives. So, and then the understanding, and this is going to sound crazy, but that we planned this, that all this is planned so that we can learn certain lessons. And with that, it's almost like the whole side of a mountain fell away, you know, like half dome, like all those complaints and all the evidence of why life is so wrong from a different perspective where we've lived many lives and we've come here with the purpose of learning things that we haven't been able to learn before. So we set these things up. And again, I, I, I want to just say to those people that are listening that can't accept that, I'm with you. I get it. But I've lived the other side of it. And so I would just recommend reading that book to open your mind a little bit to the possibility of it. And give That's us fast. the name of the book one more time. Yeah, it's called Destiny of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton. Got it. And I don't, I don't know if he's alive anymore, but he wrote it in the 90s. Yeah, just so you know, on my website as well, baronstephan.com, there's a whole resource library page where I put all the books, the audio, and the miscellaneous lessons and things that helped me get through those 13 days after her uh, sudden death. It includes my yoga. It includes Destiny of Souls. The book is there. So all those things are there for people to, to check out. 
Oh, excellent. But yeah, Baron, that, what you said earlier and what you've obviously just uh, stated uh, recently, very, very correct in a lot of ways. I think failure, pain, in a lot of ways, these things are, are major teachers in life. And it's very difficult to look at it as, wow, this is a blessing that I'm going through this pain. This is um, to have gratitude or, or compassion, even for yourself. The hate, you know, this is wow. Whether it's you know, experiencing a loss, experiencing you know, um, an accident in life, some sort of trauma, uh, maybe it's a breakup or, or divorce. It's it's very difficult to kind of when you're in it to look at it as like wow, this is an opportunity to you know do something great. But it is <laughs> like it's it's terrible. But this is what the challenges of life have provided, and to now. And and I think the most difficult part is getting out of, you know, that ego attachment part of you that wants to cling to everything that's comfortable, that wants to cling to that even that inner self, that critical self, even even mm-hmm. if that's negative, that wants to still attach to that version of you, that mm-hmm. everything's that everything's normal, even though it might not be healthy. And a lot of ways, I was thinking about it like. If you if you were wearing these shoes that had a hole in them, and every time you walk down a path, you know rocks get in, you know eventually you got to look at that and say I got to fix this hole, rather than continue mm-hmm. along the path of whatever whatever it is that's going on with me that's preventing me from moving on or moving up or detaching. Yes, yes, and to me that's the purpose of yoga. That's the why of why yoga and why did I get back into it is to make myself strong enough that in the moment of the tragedy instead of seeing it as a calamity i was able to trust it and turn to see how it could possibly have been planned to bring out something new in me that i hadn't been able to before and that just opened the most bizarrely beautiful doors i've ever experienced my life is not the same you guys it is not the same I feel extraordinary. I feel deeply blessed. And probably not, you know, what's, what's interesting is that like I had the mindset just, you know, earlier in my life where I thought, okay, well, once I get to, once I get to a certain level, then, you know, nothing will affect me and I'll be okay. You know, I, <laughs> I'll be okay. But it's like, that's, that's a terrible mindset to go in in life with because things happen all the time you know and yep. and you know it's yeah. just what it is and it almost became where it's like i had to like at the same time it's it's like you, like you said you're preparing yourself to for the next wave and we you know, talk about we're the sport yeah. that you love to do big wave surfing that next wave is coming whether <laughs> you like it or not yeah, yeah, but 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 the problem with that, Sean, is, and I fully agree with you that sometimes you think you're prepared, but the problem is the next wave may be bigger than what you anticipated. Oh, for sure, <laughs> that's it, Darwin. That, but, but and that's the whole purpose for yoga is that like the greatest challenges are the ones that we're, we came here for, and so literally we have to prepare for not being ready for it, and that's why all the surrender and the letting go happens. Because as long as we think that we're we're strong now and we're prepared, right, yeah. we're gonna get dist- annihilated. 
annihilated because the ego cannot possibly deal with anything it has never seen before. It is never going to be prepared for that. I think, yeah, and that's beautiful. And it also like, isn't that like a major Hindu philosophy uh, as well as, and in probably a lot of other faiths and spiritualities, whereas like, you know, there's destruction is needed. You know, things need to be mm. destroyed in order to be rebuilt in that way. As, as painful and as destructive as it is. And, and I was just thinking, Darwin, you, you, I think you understand that as well. Cause you, you submerged yourself in that wave by doing, by essentially talking about your dad's death, by talking about that painful grief, you know, you've entered into that wave, right? I, yeah, I have, but, but that's, but that's my point. As much as I thought, for instance, my mother just passed away a couple of years ago and as much as I thought my father's death and a lot of people who have died since then, as I thought that all this would prepare me for the moment that my mother was no longer here, I quickly found out, at least for myself, that I wasn't as prepared as I thought that I was. So it hit a lot deeper than I thought that it would. There were a lot of things that were just harder for me than I thought that they would be. So, my, and this sort of segues into. I guess start the next portion of this conversation is Baron lost his wife to a car accident. So how are you taking all these things that you're learning and that you're studying and that you're practicing? And then when this big wave, your wife passing away hits for me, it's sort of hard to apply everything that I've learned previously to current yeah. things that are happening because the emotion the feeling, the love I have for the person, all that stuff is so raw, it's sort of hard to apply the things that I've learned. So I just want yeah. I just want you to speak to that for a second. Yeah, it, it is it's just so true. So the, the the there's multiple answers to that, but one is, you know, if you read the bio of my wife, she was an extraordinary woman. Like a global mover and shaker. Let me give, just give you two quick things that she did, and then you guys can point me back to the question you just asked, Arwen, which is she, for example, she was invited by Jimmy Carter to facilitate at the Carter Center with him when he invited religious leaders from all around the world to talk about why women are being uh, abused by their religions. She was worked for five years with Tostan International, which is this US based nonprofit in um, Dakar, um, Africa. That was the first organization to help over 8,000 villages curtail, voluntarily curtail female genital cutting. So my wife was just an amazingly beautiful human being, strong, gorgeous. And so what, when she and I met, she had just come out of her first divorce and I had never been married. I was 45 and she was 38. And what we saw in each other was simply the desire to live life at a totally different level. And even though she wasn't in city yoga, she had her own path. We both just, part of our being together was to learn how to trust life completely. And so we began to, and it's in my path, it's in city yoga, but together we would, we would often talk about how to trust things that showed up out of the blue, no matter how abhorrent or strange they seemed for a hidden lesson. And so these were things that we've been doing for, since we met. And in Siddha Yoga and the daily lessons I took, these were practices and, and contemplations that I would engage in every day. And even with all that, Darwin, it was still unbelievably difficult to 
bring myself back from being carried away from that crazy emotions that that happen. So what you're asking is a huge ask, but it's possible. And that's why I wrote the book. Thank you for that. Yeah, that, that's that's true, true words. Indeed. Um, let's actually get into the death of your wife and the circumstances surrounding that. The book is the true story of the 13 days following my wife's fatal automobile accident. And it's a moment by moment chronicle that begins with the officer's word, she is deceased. And those 13 days were unlike anything I could have possibly imagined or expected. The agony and the beauty, like alternating as if a child was playing with a light switch from intense pain to ecstatic love almost hourly. And to be completely honest, it was the love and gratitude that had the upper hand. And I attribute that to my path and of yoga and to what we're going to talk about soon, which are the grief dreams that there is a lot more out there than just this world and this life. So Shauna was, she was at the end of 14 days of working with the Natural Hazards Institute um, in Boulder, Colorado, and she was going to fly back home to Vashon Island in Washington the next day, and I got a call from an officer, and he told me. So the next 13 days, and why 13 days is in, in the Eastern traditions, there's this 13-day period where it's it seen that the the soul needs 13 days to to process and 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 figure out you know how to get ready to move on and so on that 13th day there's a celebration of their life and in that way you're releasing them from this physical realm and anything that would hold them here and so somehow the book just became about those 13 days like i was able to get everything that happened into those 13 days so the 13 days is more about processing her loss it's not, and I just want to verify this for the listeners. It's not about in 13 days your grief is over. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I just. I'm, laugh, I'm no, no, no. Wait, wait. I'm laughing not because it's a dumb question. I'm laughing because I kind of thought that it might be like that, but I found out it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So you know, there is the, there is that that. That, that practice, right, of 13 days, that on the 13th day, the soul is kind of ready to leave and move on. And you, you release them on that day and, you know, you're thanking them and, and sending them on with love. But what I discovered naively was, of course, oh, my God, you know, 13 days will never, never be enough for all the layers and layers and layers. What's interesting is, uh, you know, obviously con contrasting what people are used to and, and, and different rituals. Like, I find that so fascinating. And what was your experience like? Obviously, this is the first time maybe you've been a part of that type of ritual and funeral ceremony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you con contrast that with the, I guess, the more Western traditional of like having a funeral and then kind of saying your piece or, or however the situation is, maybe with um something different but in general it's kind of different but yeah how how was that ritual process um looking at it from maybe an outsider's perspective ah uh, you know that's a hard one i don't know um it i do know that it 
Shauna was so known globally, and there was such a global outcry when she died of people just devastated that um, that 13th day became a global activity. And there were, you know, through social media, there were pods of people all over the world from West Africa to Detroit to you name it that were going to send her into the light, quote unquote, on that day, because that's the that's the information that I got. I, I don't know. I can't speak to the to other practices. What I what resonates for me and resonated for me was this relationship between physical existence and continued existence afterwards and the respect between the two and that there is still a role I could play even in my grief of letting Shauna know and this and the monk told me this was important was to let her know that I was going to be all right without her so she wouldn't try to stick around Mm. and so that was the that was what I shared on social media was look guys we're we're all sending Shauna into the light and we're letting her know her work will not die without her that they will carry it on here and we'll be fine without her too. That's what worked for me. I would say the other important piece that he told me to do during those 13 days was to talk to her, to sit before my altar and talk to her and tell her how much I love her and how grateful I am for what we've shared together and to thank her and to be with her. And that, that moved my grief from into a whole nother level where suddenly it felt it felt life giving instead of life taking. Mm. And it, yeah, it shifted everything. That's beautiful. And so that's interesting. Walk us through maybe the raw emotions that started maybe shortly after the death, but then, you know, maybe a few months later to maybe a couple of years later, what was, what was that relationship like with Shauna essentially? And that bond that you kind of had to shift into now a different type of bond. Well, um, that's really what what the book is about to, to chronicle those like how the heck did I get from point A to point B to point C? And in those first few moments, sitting in the car when the officer told me, and he said she is deceased, and he used the perfect words because it it left no doubt in my mind. There wasn't anything that could be done. And from the moment he said that, there were no thoughts in my mind. I was. Shauna, Shauna was um, in one of her college courses, she taught about what's called the unaskable question. And it's that question that if we don't ask it, it threatens the foundation of life in that area or realm. And so the way I relate to this is I had never, ever even considered what life might be like without Shauna. And so when the officer said that, it went from impossible to actual. And my brain had never made those neuronal connections before and so there were no thoughts because there was nothing ready for it and I just floated in that space for so long and fortunately and again this is one of the things that I think is was a a deep blessing to me was that I was on that day I was taking a Shaktipat intensive at um in Seattle and so I was it was the last break of the day when I got the voicemail to call the officer and so I went out to my car listened to the message and called him back. And so right after he told me five minutes later, I went back in for the last session of the intensive. And, you know, I've been taking these Shaktipat intensives for years. So there's nothing that I trust more, like that is more sacred or more trustworthy than that. 
So in that way, I was deeply blessed to have that to turn to, to, to give my, myself to in that moment, to something I, I deeply trusted. Now, you say you went in and you took this session. Was that because your training had kicked in? Or do you think mm -hmm. that you were still sort of in shock in that moment? It just hadn't kicked in yet. Both. So what happened was I got out of the car. <laughs> when I finally got out of the car, I looked around and there was no, so we had rented the Unitarian Church that day, like our, our yoga center had been um, moving around. And so there was no one around but about seven of us that day. And as I looked up in the parking lot in front of the church, the only person standing there was the local host for the intensive. And I knew that she had lived in the ashram for a long time. And so she had a lot of, of what I would call knowledge, right? And so, you know, in that state, I was so empty and bereft at the same time that I looked into her eyes and I said, I need to, I told, I said, I just found out my wife was killed in a car accident this morning. I need to know if I should go back into the intensive or go home and chant the Guru Gita right now. So the Guru Gita is what we're told brings immense blessings to chant for the one who's departed. And that's why I asked that in that moment. And she said, I can't tell you what to do, but I do know that in this last session, we're going to chant the mantra with Guru Mai, who's the teacher, the head of the city of the lineage. And so in that moment, as soon as she said that, I went into the intensive. So in that moment, when I went up to her, I, I didn't know. I, I knew when I got out of the car, there was only one thing in my head. And it was send Shauna as many blessings as soon as possible for as long as possible. And so that's why I asked her, should I go chant the Guru Gita to send blessings that way or go back into the tensive? intensive to send her blessings that way. And that was my, that was my number one and only thing in my head for days was send Shauna blessings. So now you've talked a lot about doing things for Shauna, but at what point in time did you feel the need to do something for yourself? Well, in a sense, it was all for myself. And so, you know, ultimately, one of the big lessons, I think, of, of grief, and I learned it over and over over those 13 days, and, and certainly since then, is that the best way to get out of grief is to give, mm. is to serve someone else. And so I didn't know it, but the training that I had for so long, which was, you know, Senshan of Blessings, was the best way to give myself. Because what it did was it it filled me with love and gratitude for her. And in that place, instead of going diving into the abyss of, of torture, right, of, of, of devastation, which was there, and I went through that many times over the 13 days, instead I had something else to focus on, and that was the blessing. Well, God bless you, Baron. You, you are a selfless man. I, that's all I can say. Oh, wow. it's the love. It, it, you guys, if, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you met my wife, you, like everyone else, would fall madly in love with her. Like gorgeous on the inside and outside and completely devoted to serving the world. Wow. Like that was her life purpose. So, so how could I do anything else other than honor her in that way, right? And that's still in my heart. Because that's how I honor her. Wow, that is so, that's so beautiful to, you know, so how you could definitely tell there's so much love there and to meet someone so special in your life and to have that 
touch you in that way to make you want to give. I just, there's a couple of things I just want to touch upon. And I, I love that. I love that what you said about that is that getting out of grief by giving. And I think people do that in, in different forms. And, and the one thing I can say is that I know in what we do and even Darwin, what you do is by providing a space for people and having conversations about your grief. But what you're doing is you're not just talking about your grief. You're also asking about their grief. So you are in a way that that is a form of giving because you're giving yourself in that conversation and providing a space, providing an ear for someone to share something off their mind, something off their plate, um, which is a beautiful thing that you do, obviously. And that probably you probably understand that helps your grief as well. Right. Um, you know, and and I have that with with when we do the podcast, when when I reach out to someone and we talk about their loss, you know having a conversation especially with you know someone that you've met or, or a friend um when you have a real deep connected conversation you're giving in that conversation because you're providing that space and that peace so that's that's just something that was i was thinking about on that end and the second thing i wanted to talk about actually talking about how beautiful that moment was when you were talking about shauna but yeah what are some things that that you remember about her that you uh, really cherish some memories, maybe? Shauna was so loved by so many across the globe. Um, so I think I, I love what everyone loved in her, which was just this person who was from the get-go committed to making a difference for the world, for all its creatures. So she was, you know, a doctor of sociology and she worked you know, my God, there's just too much to say about Sean. If you go to her website, restorativeleadership.com, you'll you'll read about her because they did they have continued her work. But just someone deeply committed through the lens of environmental sustainability, climate change, and leadership, and especially women's leadership, mm. to to transform to to make this a world that works for everyone is something she often said. To uh, she she had all these phrases and people called them Shaunaism. So Shauna would say, "The 21st century is calling us to greatness, and nothing less will do." Like, and she would say, "The state of the world is the state of the of the leadership of the world." So she always put it on leaders to to be the energy they needed to be. Like, this is my wife, you guys. This is what I live with every day. It's crazy. <laughs> uh well, you know, and and I, she's, those are some great things to say and hear. I mean, I, I totally agree. You know, it's up to leaders and, and people to kind of take on uh, those actions. And, and we truly are, uh, you know, we can, we are the change that, that needs to happen uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. If we want the world to change, let's move on to actually dreams. Cause I know we wanted to touch mm -hmm. upon that. Um, have you had any dreams of Shauna or anybody else um, that has passed? So many dreams of Shauna, you guys. I, I couldn't even count them all. So I'll just, I, I have, let me just start with like one of the first ones. So one of the first ones after she died was I was in, I'm in a room in the dream and through the window, I see Shauna inside the building across from me walking by a window and I yell, wifey, because I used to call her wifey. And she looks through the window shocked and says, oh my God, where are you? And she runs to look for me. And so in that moment, I, I know that there's no way to get to the other building. So I focus on our love to try and join her that way, but it doesn't work. 
But I share that that dream in particular because I I feel I've always written down my dreams, so I have a, an understanding that there are some dreams that are real time that are really happening. There are others that that are simply uh, expressions of the waking state and all of that. And um, that was a powerful one. I had a dream with my teacher Gurumai, which is rare. And in this dream, I'm walking up a staircase to go to one of the satsangs, the, the city yoga meetings, and Gurumai is coming down the stairs and she's crying. And I've never seen Gurumai cry. <laughs> and in the, she points for me to go back down the stairs. And so with great respect, I let her pass me by. And then I follow her down into the basement room where she's lying down on the couch still crying. And suddenly the room has many of her attendants helping her. And I ask someone, is there anything I can do to help her, knowing that she has attendants and won't need my help? And instead, the attendant makes the sign of writing in the air. And so that's the first time I thought of writing the book. Oh, wow. So your, your guru had passed. Had no, died. so no, Gurmai came to me in a dream and oh, she was okay. crying in the dream. And in the dream, her attendant told me, that's how I can help Gurmai. And so I asked, the, I called my friend Swamiji, the monk in City Yoga, and asked him what he thinks this meant. And he said, you know, he, he didn't even let me finish talking. He said, you know, I know what I think. He said, I think Gurmai crying means that you need to feel your emotions. He said, don't pole vault your feelings with your practices, meaning my meditation and my chanting that I've been doing nonstop. And he mm -hmm. hit a nail on the head, right? In, in yoga, I had used all the things I'd learned, right? All my deep connection to chanting and meditation and one-pointed focus to help me deal with and not fall into the abyss. But what I was also doing was neglecting the human side of it, which is the grief is there and meant to be experienced. And that was a great gift for my teacher to let me know in that way that I needed to feel that as well. I have lots of dreams, so do you want me to tell you another one? Or Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, okay. please. In June of 2018, so about a year, no, six months after she died, a year and a half after she died, I'm somewhere with my band, Baron's Big Band, and I've asked Shauna to come along. And when she arrives at the door, I yell, it's wifey, and I go and hug her. And as we hug, I start to just sob. And I'm in the sobbing is just a realization of the depth of my sadness and need for her. And she says, of course. And what she meant by that, of course, is, of course, you feel this. Of course, you need me here now. I'm here, baby. In September of 2018, I had a dream with Shauna. And I say to her, we're sitting in a room, I say, I've asked for your help so many times since your death. <laughs> so this often happens, right, where we talk to the person, even though they're alive in the dream, we refer to them as being dead. It's to me, I've had this happen a number of times. So I say to her, I've asked for your help so many times since your death to help me stick with the process and not being fo focused too much on my goals. Um, another one here. I'm in bed with Shauna, and she gets out of bed, climbs around, comes around and climbs in the other side next to me. And I look at her and I say, honey, since you've been dead, my relationship to life is so different. Everything is so temporary. Experiences are so temporary. Another dream. Um, so Shauna appears at the end of a dream completely out of context, and she's completely naked in the corner of the room. And as soon as I see her, I look across and I approach her and I say, is it really you? 
And wordlessly, she affirms, yes. And I say, can I hug you? And we hug. And again, I'm completely lost in love with her. And so all of these dreams I want you to know are the last dream of the night. So I wake up after each of these dreams. Mm. And that's something I've noticed as well. And you'll, that's something that um, Dr. Newton talks about too, that oftentimes our loved ones who have passed away into the subtle realm, if they want to get a message to us, one of the ways they'll do it is, is entering the last dream we have before we wake up so we can remember it. The last dream I want to share is just uh, about a month ago. She came over to me in the bed, looked at me and said, I love you more and more each day and kissed me and I woke up. And to me, that's the essence of what I loved about what Josh said in his um, Grief Dreams website, which is, I didn't think that the bond of our love could continue after she died. And I have learned that I was so wrong to my delight. Wow, all those dreams are incredible. And Josh is going to kill me if I don't go back and talk about some of them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what I wanted to ask is actually, and so all of these dreams you felt were more leaning towards the visitation ones, or did you feel like they were more of the waking life kind of ones? Visitation. There are so many waking right. life ones that I wouldn't bother mentioning all of them. Okay, to you, okay, she's excellent. Just, she's just there. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, because what a, there's a theme in all of these and a lot of the themes, first of all, they're obviously all very comforting and beautiful dreams. But the other theme there is that you are able to reveal a side of yourself, maybe that, you know, an area of yourself that maybe during waking life and your regular routines, maybe difficult to do or vulnerable to do, um, you know, that raw emotion and she's clued into that. You know, and she's providing comfort, coming back and and giving you something that you need that you're not able to kind of get. Um, And that's amazing. Yeah, that you're you're 100% right. And that's my experience of it. So I'm going to say something really strange now since we're on the thing, which is, in my opinion, and what I've come to understand since Sean has gone is death doesn't really exist. Like these bodies, they're like cars that we ride around. And we've, we've been in so many cars so many times. I, so in the book, there's a chapter where the third night after Shauna's death, she comes and talks to me through my head, and I wrote it all down. It's that chapter called Awake and Livid. And there was one other time after her death that they, she did that to me. And I want to tell you what she said because I wrote it down. She said, I'm with you so much now, and I know you feel me. I don't miss you because I'm with you anytime I want or choose. And it's so much more available now. Mm. And in yoga, we talk about that as the, the subtle realm where, where past and present doesn't exist, Every past and future, everything is in the present moment. So it makes perfect sense that I would be much more available to her and she can be with me whenever she wants. And that's my experience. I talk to her all the time, walking around the yeah. house every day. It makes me just feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And that's... Right? Uh, that's a lot of the ways, you know, of why we do this podcast, why we want to talk about dreams being that important mm. is because there is this mystery there that we're trying to learn more about. But obviously, sometimes you just have to sit in that mystery of why are we able to have this bond? How is this even possible? Mm-hmm. How is this continuing bond so important? And, and, and why, how are dreams that link? Uh, you know, it's, it's something that we don't know enough about, but there's something so 
insanely crazy and mysterious mm -hmm. and beautiful about these visitation dreams or these grief dreams, you know, where, where people come back and they touch us in a way. And I always like to say that it's like creating new memories in a lot of ways, because, you know, mm -hmm. you might, you know, you've never had that dream before. It's been, you know, you have it and now it's in your memory. Now it's those neurons are, are you know, similar to memory neurons of events that actually happened in your life. And that, that actually, that is, is a, is a crazy mystery on its own because then now that transcends, like you said earlier, death, like what is death then at that point? Yeah. No, that's why I, I cherish that one dream where she says, I love you more and more each day. Like wow. it continues. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and again, that's a, uh, why we try to talk about dreams and why we talk about it, why we have this podcast is to just let people know that, Hey, um, these dreams can be very important. And, and if you have them, then that's beautiful and, and to cherish them and to look at it as that light and, and not to dismiss them or, or, you know, um, dismiss anybody mm -hmm. else who shares a dream with you. Cause you never know how that can impact you. And you can eventually hopefully get them if you're not getting them. Um, and, and awareness is one of the major factors that plays a part in that is that, hey, you know, just be aware that, you know, that you are uh, dreaming at night and, you know, sometimes maybe you don't remember them. And that's the first key is to try to remember them. And then, then you can see from there and go on from there. But yeah, beautiful. And again, thank you so much for sharing those dreams. Mm. Um, Darwin, anything you wanted to ask or talk about? No, man, it was perfect. Well, actually, I, I take that back. There is one question. So is, is, is there a favorite song that you sang that she liked? Oh, uh, yeah, that's part of the book, too, is um, that song, Volare. Volare, okay. oh, and I changed the words for her and sang it to her as Amore, oh. You know what? I'm glad that somebody else is saying that song because the only memory of that song that I have is Ricardo Montalban in that commercial. But uh, <laughs> but, but but I do. <laughs> but, 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 but that sounds perfect. Okay. Before we actually get to the final question, I did want to talk about mm -hmm. the book experience. So how how was it writing the book itself, and what was that process like? Good God, what a question! I didn't want to write the book, but friends asked me to try. And the more I wrote, the more my love and gratitude for Shona became the fuel to try and understand how even a tragedy can lead to a greater understanding of myself and of my purpose for being alive. And then how to use that experience to benefit humanity. The writing of that book was the greatest gift. I sobbed so many times over the year and a half of writing that. And then I recorded it as an audiobook, so I went through it all over again. Um, but I see it as a great gift. Like my desire to honor her and my teachers, because that's what the book is about, right? It's about her and how City of my teachers helped me understand that there was a gift there, that it wasn't a tragedy somehow, that there was more there and to not give up until I figured it out, until I opened myself to it. So that's, the, that's what the gift was. It, it keeps giving. And um, I, I hope it, and I know it, that it, it's, it will help others. That's nice. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. And, and it, it's so nice to hear that that process was what uh, you needed at that time. 
and it's obviously something that you can carry forward with you. Uh, you know, writing can be cathartic, being creative and expressing, you know, emotions and expressing your words and also good for a good job doing it. Cause it's, it's obviously a very difficult thing to kind of, uh, you know, write a whole book and, and get everything out there. I hope that's inspiration for you, Darwin, to get in, uh, get some writing in on uh, your book. It is. And, and I have, it's been bits and pieces. Uh, it's been difficult over the last year or so, but yeah, I'm in process. Excellent. We're still working on it. Good stuff. Um, Baron, where can people find your book actually? And and that's awesome that you did an audio book. I think that's great. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was quite a trip. Um, so, I mean, you can find it obviously on Amazon. If you go to my website, baronstephan.com, I give multiple ways to get the, the book, the ebook and the audio book, because there's a lot of my friends and Shauna friends that uh, don't want to support Amazon. And so there's other ways to, <laughs> to get it other places. Excellent. Yeah, perfect. And, and, and like I said, we'll post a, a link to that um, on the show notes. Uh, so Baron, let's get to the last question. And like we'd like to ask all our guests is if you could have a dream of your loved one who has passed, um, what kind of dream would you want that to be? Yikes. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I, I hate to say it, but I don't know. I feel like I, I have them all, at, all the time of just, there is just this merging that happens when she and I are together. There is a great goodness of being lost in love with her. And I guess that would be, it would be to, to have that experience one more time of, of being lost in love with her. Well, is there something that has not happened in a dream that you wish would happen in a dream? Whew. That would be an unaskable question. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> um, Did you guys have a favorite place? Well, we had many of those, but I just, I just feel like, you know, because of yoga and because of my focus since the three years, you know, there's so much more in existence to me than just this world. And so in one sense, I guess that would be what I would want to experience more of that, that other realm where, where she is in between lives. I would want to share more of that with her so that I can bring that back and benefit others here while I'm still here. I know I'm here for only a little while longer. So, uh, yeah, I would want to be able to benefit others, which is what she wants anyway. Isn't that interesting? Like, to go see where that person is that's great uh baron and i hope you have that dream tonight this conversation thank has been you. excellent and uh really appreciate you coming on thank you it takes a lot of courage for people to again tell their story and to tell their lost story and you did a phenomenal job honoring the memory of shauna and uh just hearing you talk about her you know it just it warms my heart you can hear uh the love in your voice and the relationship that you had and you continue to have uh which is incredible through dreams and again it just talk uh it just shows you know having having you on just to talk about the dreams you know that's incredible and we could do a whole nother podcast probably on mm -hmm. uh the dreams and we'll have to have you on again to talk ab about uh, any new dreams that you have and and we'll uh, we'll get dr black on here uh to kind of talk about those as well because i'm sure he's he's probably super he'll be super psyched uh to listen to this and to hear about all the dreams that you were able to have Thank you so much for the work you're doing. It, um, it is crucial work because people need that. It's like downloading something that, that is so different from their normal experience. And so 
dreams can give us that. And so I'm, as soon as I saw that what you all do, I was immediate yes to it because there's such a huge need in the world now for alternative beneficial input. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think we can all agree here that, you know, there's so much mystery in life. Mm -hmm. And look, there's things we don't know. And it's important to also to sit into the sit in on those, you know, everything can't just can't be black and white, you know, either reality, you know, science mm -hmm. or reality and not reality. And, and that's something that like, we've mm -hmm. kind of dismissed dreams in, 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 rec in recent times and kind of not really looked into them too much and, and thought that they're that important, but they are. And especially having uh, these special dreams of, of people you love who have died, you know, there, there can be some powerful moments in that. And uh, so, yeah, we really appreciate that as well. Baron, can you just uh, let people know again where they can find you or, or your books? Mm -hmm. So you can go to baronstefan.com. And if you want to um, know about my work, you can go to theyogaofmindset.com, all one word, the yoga of mindset. And I, I wrote three months of lessons that are free. And I recorded them because that's what I've done for 20 years is listen to my own lessons. So for training, helping the mind understand. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Baron. Um, people, you can check out our stuff at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you wanted to contribute there, you can do so on our website. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And Darwin, um, can you let people know where your uh, podcast is available and your stuff? Sure. You can find everything of mine at dealingwithmygrief.com. And it'll lead you to the social media handles, contact information, so on and so forth. Excellent. Thanks, Darwin, for coming on. really appreciate it. Uh, it was great doing this with you. And we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation. <laughs>